welcome to Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny, And I'm Zoe Chase. Today on Planet Money, how much is enough? We have three stories for you today that deal with that question. How much should a bank pay for committing a crime? How much should the government pay doctors for treating Medicare patients? How much should our children pay for our retirement? That's our show today. First up, the bank. A big one. HSBC. This week, HSBC got slapped with a huge fine, almost $2 billion, for ignoring money laundering by Mexican drug cartels. Our very own Robert Smith wonders if that's enough money to really hurt. If a kid does something naughty and you want to discipline the child, give him a timeout, say, or take away a toy, there's some basic principles that seem to work. The punishment needs to happen quickly, right after the bad behavior, and it needs to be significant enough that the kid notices. But punishing a bank makes both of these things incredibly tricky. In the case of HSBC, their dealings with Mexican drug dealers took place over a decade. This is justice very much delayed, and that may be, to a degree, justice denied. John Coffey is a law professor at Columbia University and an expert in prosecuting white-collar crime. He says that simply punishing the whole bank, the corporation, years after the crime, may not send the message that you want. The taking of billions of dollars in cash from Mexican drug cartels and funneling it into the U.S. into legitimate investments, that was done by individuals who knew what they were doing. And no one has been held accountable who's a flesh and blood human being. So that's the first problem in levying a fine against a bank. Who really has to pay the money at the end of the day? The corporation. Or more specifically, the shareholders. Not exactly the specific wrongdoers getting what they deserved. Then there is the amount of the penalty. $1.9 billion is a lot of money, no doubt about it. But when you break it down, it's hard to know how much this really hurts a bank. These fines are large from the perspective of you and me and from the perspective of the institution. They are simply a cost of doing business. William K. Black is a former federal regulator. He now teaches economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He points out that HSBC makes a lot of money. And $1.9 billion works out to about a month's worth of profit for the bank, based on what they were pulling in at the beginning of the year. Black says that the settlement was negotiated between the bank and the federal prosecutors, and it was important for both sides that it not be unbearably high. The government dramatically reduces from the beginning uh, what its demand uh, would be because we don't want to put HSBC out of business. And so we're going to cap the demands from the very beginning. See, there was something that the federal government could have done to punish the bank that really would have hurt. They could have indicted HSBC for doing business with drug cartels, made it very difficult to operate in the United States. But Lanny Brewer, head of the Justice Department's criminal division, says they didn't want to punish all the innocent people who worked for the bank who would lose their jobs. When he announced the settlement this week, he said that HSBC had cleaned house. They were agreeing to more oversight and were cooperating. It's a fiction to suggest that this isn't a very robust result. We've gone after the cartels. We've gone after the traffickers. And in this particular case, we have held a financial institution absolutely accountable. But is $1.9 billion enough of a punishment to make all the other banks take notice? Clearly, no institution wants this kind of bad publicity. But law professor John Coffey says in the past, the lessons that really shook up entire industries usually involved criminal indictments, not just money. He points to Michael Milken in the 1980s. He was the king of the junk bonds until he was charged with insider trading. Everyone knew him on Wall Street. And when he eventually made a deal and went to jail, 
that sent a message for a decade to Wall Street that this was very dangerous behavior. Don't go anywhere near it. And I think that message was internalized. Coffee says the thing that made the lesson stick was the fact that Milken was this iconic figure who was personally humiliated. No Wall Street trader wanted to be in that guy's shoes. HSBC, they agreed to pay money, sure. But the settlement was over quickly, and investors don't seem to mind. So far, the stock price is holding steady. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. Next up, doctors. Doctors get paid by the government every time they treat a Medicare patient. It's a standard payout. It's been around for a while. But lately, the government's been asking, are we paying too much? How much is enough? Hannah Jaffe-Walt has the story. The way doctors get paid, the way a regular checkup or a surgery gets turned into money, most of us never see that side. And actually, doctors don't really always understand that side. For instance, yesterday in the Bronx in New York, Chris Varis took his grandfather to see Dr. Bob Murrow. And Varis told the doctor his grandfather has dementia, hasn't spoken a word to anyone for over a year. And then just the other day... He actually held his hand to his chest. We asked him if his heart hurts because he kept holding it. And he kept nodding yes. And now I'm almost sure that he's either got some kind of pain over there. So we just want to make sure everything is fine. Dr. Morrow listens, asks a bunch of questions. The grandson answers them to the best of his ability. Dr. Morrow orders a cardiogram, leaves the room, comes back. You guys all dressed? Yeah, you can come in. Yeah, probably better close. So uh, the cardiogram is normal. <coughs> okay. And so that that's good. But the doctor says the grandfather should still see a cardiologist. There's some more discussion, and then it's over. Dr. Morrow and I stand in the hall as the patients leave the office. So what... What happens now? In what what way? With the money. How does the money work from here? Oh, <laughs> well, I fill out this form. Dr. Morrow fills in what he did on the form and then sends it to his billing guy, a guy named Ruko Angario, who turns the form into codes which get turned into money. First visit with a new patient, code number 99204. $144.96. And then there's the cardiogram. With Medicare... The payment's roughly around $17. So about $160 for the whole thing. A very specific, very contested number. Hundreds of thousands of doctors, like Dr. Murrow, bill Medicare for everything they do, every service and procedure. And every year, doctors bill for more and more things. So back in 1997, Congress said, look, if doctors keep sending more bills every year for visits and cardiograms, Medicare will pay less for things like visits and cardiograms. There will be a formula, keep costs in check. Professor Joseph Newhouse teaches health policy at Harvard University, and he says in 2002, the formula was clear. Cut doctor fees by 4%. Doctors, of course, were somewhat grumpy about this. Some of them started to talk about maybe we won't be happy about taking Medicare patients. People on Medicare didn't like the sound of that, and people in Congress didn't like to hear their senior voters upset. And so the next year, in 2003, when the same thing happened, the formula said again to cut doctor fees. And the Congress said, yeah, we don't really want to go home and tell our constituents that, or have their doctors tell them that we cut their fees another 4%. So instead, ignore the formula. Raise fees just a little bit, just this year. And then the next year, and then the next... And the formula is cumulative. 
which means that right now the $160 Dr. Murrow made, the formula says it should be a lot less. If we were going to fix the whole thing and make up for all of the cuts that the formula said we should have made, we would cut his fee 30%. Are we going to do that? No. So why do we have the formula? I think the answer is that it uh, allows us to pretend the deficit is less than it really is. Because the deficit lives by this fiction, too, that we will cut doctor fees by 30 percent, even though everyone knows that is very, very unlikely to actually happen. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, NPR News. Our last story, how much is enough? Babies. That's right. A new report just came out saying that the birth rate in the U.S. is at a record low. And that could be a real problem because we need babies to pay for our retirements. Alex Bloomberg is doing his part. He's got two babies. So cute. And he looks at the question, how many babies is enough for us? Here's the problem with declining birth rates. Right now, I and my colleagues and all of you out there currently working, we are all paying to support our grandparents and other elderly people in the United States who currently receive Medicare or Social Security. And relatively speaking, there's still plenty of us working people around compared to the number of retirees. But by the time my two-year-old son gets to be my age... The problem for him is that He's going to have fewer co-workers. Richard Johnson is a retirement policy expert at the Urban Institute. And that means that he's going to have to pay a bigger share of the cost of supporting you and your parents than he expected. And then we inspected. And it's not just a problem for him, but it's also a problem for the retired people. Because what if he says, hell no, I'm not paying more? <laughs> well, right. And then that's you, possible. You guys created this mess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then what we're going to see is retirement benefits are going to fall. Johnson says for him, it's clear, in order to keep the entire burden of supporting future retirees from falling on my son and his tiny cohort of coworkers, we should start sharing the pain now, either by paying a bit more when we're working or accepting a bit less when we retire, or a little of both. But Dean Baker, an economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, says cut the hand-wringing about declining birth rates. Workers of the future, he says, will be so much more productive than we are today, just as workers today are more productive than our parents were. Yeah, we went from having five workers to retiree in 1960 to three today. And guess what? Both workers and retirees have considerably higher living standards, at least on average, today than they did in 1960. Baker says, sure, my son and his generation will have to pay a bit more to support me and other retirees, but his standard of living will be so much higher in 30 or 40 years, he won't care. Not everyone is convinced by this argument. We can assume that our kids will live in some kind of Buck Rogers future, um, but that doesn't make it happen. For example, Philip Longman, author of a book titled Empty Cradle, How Falling Birth Rates Threaten World Prosperity and What to Do About It. Longman says it's not fair to assume that my son and his cohort will be so much wealthier, they'll be happy to pay for my retirement. I speak from the perspective of a baby boomer. The previous generation did that to us. They assumed a world that didn't happen. They assumed a world in which GDP growth would be 5% a year, in which poverty would wither away. And guess what? We didn't grow up to be the affluent society, right? We grew up in a world in which kids are more likely to be poor now than they were 20 years ago. Social Security and Medicare are sticking points in the negotiations over the so-called fiscal cliff. Recommendations range from raising the retirement age to getting the wealthy to pay more to any number of policy proposals in between. The one thing that's certain about this debate, because of our declining birth rate, it's almost certain to continue for decades to come. 
Alex Bloomberg, NPR News. That's our show today. As always, email us, planetmoney at npr.org. Find us online at npr.org slash money. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Spotify. I'm Caitlin Kenny. I'm Zoe Chase. Thanks for listening. And I just can't seem to-